The winemakers are up next, but first, check out this other great show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Destination Eat Drink. I'm Brent Peterson. Each week on the podcast, we visit a different foodie city and explore the cuisine that makes that place special, whether it be custard tarts in Lisbon, mango beer in Mumbai, or lizard curry in Guatemala. Download Destination Eat Drink today on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Oh, that sounded like a beautiful pour this morning, Bart. Thank you very much. It was much. a very gentle pour. <laughs> well, you've got beautiful wine to pour this morning, too, at Lido. Hey, everybody. It's Winemakers. I'm John Myers. Welcome to Brian Casey, Bart Hansen here today with Lisa and Brad Warner and Glenn Workman. And thank you guys for joining us this morning. It's a beautiful day in Napa. And, you know, although we need the rain, and I'm just going to have you talk right into that microphone glenn so you guys get up close (laughs) there we go john did you have any problem coming over the county line no i got anything i have my papers yeah it's all good (laughs) ryan and i we went the back road (laughs) (laughs) well yeah like i said it's a beautiful day and we're here at lido cellars and we're it's we're south of the town of napa and but what's happening here i first got over in this industrial area with benchmark those folks who auction and, and sell old bottles. And I know Brian's done a lot of business with Benchmark uh, and Sonoma Mission Inn and some of their... Not, well, not, not exactly by choice, but yeah. <laughs> well, you, you got to flog some wine we, you didn't want, I right? I to get rid of some inventory at some point over the last year and a half, yeah. Well, it makes sense. You, you, you know what's interesting about this business park down here is that so we talk a lot of times, or we've talked about this, is that the small amount of wine that we make, Brad, you know, um, it's like a grain of sand at the beach, right? Compared to the big guys. Compared to the big guys. And I think this business park is full of the beach. Like, there's a lot of cases of wine, maybe not necessarily made down here, but stored down here between um, uh, uh, Safe Harbor and other, um, you know, warehouses and stuff. I mean. Absolutely. There, there, this is a large part of the California wine industry exists in this part of Napa, right? Absolutely. No, there's a lot of little uh, boutiques down here, and there's also a little overflow from some of the big uh, wineries uh, in the middle of Napa Valley that are storing barrels and case goods and that type of thing down here. What? How many barrels come out of Napa, California in a year? Any idea? I know they keep saying it's worth, you know, $50 billion in the economy. I just wonder if anybody has an idea of the wine volume. So one barrel would hold about uh, 22, 23 cases. So if you look at the number of cases a winery does, if they're storing their wine in barrels, it's easy to do the math. Yeah, I had my calculator out for a second, but then realized that, this, that, that was not going to work. It's a little big for that uh, calculation, yeah, isn't it? A so I, I think, you know, the, the, one of the things we're doing here today is um, I first met Brad 
and Lisa from uh, Rutherford Rentals. Uh, when I was at Lasseter in 2007, you know, we were a small winery operating out of a garage and we only had a couple pieces of equipment and Julia knew of you and we started renting some small tanks and I think we rented a filter once and, and, and your business, that part of your business was very small at the time. You were the winemaker at Stewart Cellars, I believe. Um, Sawyer Cellars. Sawyer Cellars. Sawyer Cellars. Which is now next door. Yes. Well, it's it's all yeah. It's all it's all it's here. It's all the same. Um, and 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 you that at the time it was very small rental business, but really kind of one of its own. Um, but your start in the wine business started well before that. Um, and I was hoping that either you or Glenn could you know jump in and maybe um, talk about you know your first harvest and how it all came to be and and whatnot. Sure. Uh, well, I started in the wine business at Charles Krug Winery in 1967, April of 67. And as I like to say, I started off at the top in the wine business. Charles Krug Winery uh, had lots of redwood and oak tanks. Uh, I think they run up to like 40,000 gallon tanks. And the tops actually on those tanks were wood and they actually leaked, you know, so somebody needed to clean the tops. And that's where I started off, wow. cleaning the at tops the top. of tanks. Yeah, I've never heard of redwood. Honestly, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, it, it's it, Redwood's made its comeback. I mean, I think Joel Peterson uh, could probably be uh, is probably the largest user of Redwood tanks in this day and age. But in those days, um, Redwood was plentiful, old growth Redwood. If if we only had all of that Redwood um, now, um, but it was it was plentiful. But it was a soft wood. It leaked. Um, it could get damaged. And, and the other thing that you didn't say about those tanks is the tanks were all flat on the top. So what it would end up happening is the wine would pool and, um, and then it would attract fruit flies. So it was certainly definitely the most glamorous job that they could have given you, right, Brad? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it was, you definitely learned how to clean. <laughs> well, it seems like the people who are successful do that. You start, you do every damn job in the entire place, then do it again, and then figure out what you really like, and then you go for that. And it's, it, but everybody, when you know, when you're a seller rat, you kind of own the place basically. You're yeah, so allowed true. to run and do everything. Yeah, of course. So, but then you want to talk about your transition to Robert Mondavi from. So, yeah, so it was in 67, and uh, Robert was no longer uh, at Charles Krug Winery, it was Peter and his sisters, uh, and his mom actually was alive then too. Uh, they ran the winery. And as uh, the story goes, uh, Robert and Peter had a, a different relationship and they had to separate. And Robert in 1965, uh, when they had a disagreement, they Robert went down the road and got a couple investors together and uh, started Robert Mondavi Winery. Uh, Mondavi was pronounced Mondavi in 1967 at Charles Krug Winery. Huh. Uh, so Robert changed the way you pronounce Mondavi to Mondavi, and that was a distinction. The di different, uh, it almost sounded like a different family, but it wasn't. So in uh, 1970, I ran into Robert when I was working at the gas station in St. Helena at the Chevron. Wait, hold on a sec. You're, you're, you're working as a seller rep, but then you're also working at a gas station? Uh, yeah, I was full-time at Krug as a seller rat, and then after hours and on weekends, I uh, worked at the service station. And this is when you're actually 
you're actually doing the filling and are you like cleaning windows and doing the full service full service absolutely check your oil wash your windshield don't you own that <laughs> station today uh, yes i do <laughs> seriously i love it yeah seriously but i don't pump gas anymore <laughs> i was reading <laughs> so so you're you're like filling up his tank washing his windows you probably had like a little pressure gauge in your in your pocket and your check tire pressure and all that and did you know that it was uh robert mondavi i i did and of course i mean joe heights and louis martini and i mean all the vendors that we know uh you know they drove themselves in those days they didn't have drivers <laughs> So no, no chauffeured uh, uh, pickup trucks. Yeah. <laughs> so when Robert came in in uh, August of '70, and we were just talking, and I said, "What do you have going on down on down at that new winery?" And he says, "Well, come on down, I'll show you." So uh, I don't know if it was that evening or whatever, but I went down and met him, and he showed me through the winery, and he said, "Would you like to work for me uh, during harvest?" And I said, "Well, I work, I work for your." brother you know daytime dun, dun, dun. and he said what well, i don't care uh that's all right with me and he says but you know it will be seven days a week and i said yeah no problem so i worked day shift at uh charles crew seven days a week and uh night shift at robert mandavi seven days a week for you know it went through about the first of december uh i actually stopped working at the service station i was gonna ask <laughs> <laughs> And at the end of harvest, Robert offered me the seller foreman position at Robert Madavi Winery. So I uh, gave my notice to Charles Krug and went full-time with uh, Robert Madavi for a while. So one quick question. Did the Madavi family, was there a family connection to the Krug family? Or did the Madavi family buy Charles Krug Winery? So Charles Krug was uh, started by Charles Krug right. in uh, 1858 or 59, somewhere in there. And it was a business owner out of San Francisco is how I understand it. And it kind of gone through, you know, in and out of bankruptcy several times. And in 1941, uh, Caesar Mondavi and Sons purchased Charles Krug Winery and kept, of course, kept the name Charles Krug. Uh, they produced Charles Krug Wines and they they produce Mondavi wines. So there were two different, or Mondavi wines. There were two different levels. The uh, Mondavi line w was the CK line. It was the lesser expensive wines, and the Krug was their, their premium, their upper end. Okay, okay. And, and then, okay, so then, so first harvest at Robert Mondavi Winery. The winery was new. I know, and that's what I was I, w I wanted to ask about. So at that point, the winery is completely built, um, and the production facility. This is this is what I think people don't understand is that Robert Mondavi had this vision of right off the road putting the winery, and so and then putting the production facility there as well. So his thinking was that people could come see it from the road, come taste at the road while they were there would be able to see that they were making wine there. It was sort of, and, and he never, he, he always was willing to show people around too, like this is where we make the wine. And pe people just think that nowadays that's how wineries are, that you build them so you can see them from the road. But that was sort of a, an unusual thing at the time, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, the Arch and Tower, of course, would catch the, uh, the tourist's eye and they would come in. And of course, in those days, there weren't 
you didn't have to make an appointment. <laughs> you just yeah. came in and tasted they wine. They were happy for you to come in anytime, right? <laughs> That's right. Um, if Robert was there, uh, which he usually was, probably only 15 or 16 hours a day. Uh, wow. Yeah, you can't <laughs> catch him there. No. He would come out and greet the guests and, you know, it wouldn't necessarily be anybody he knew or knew what they did, but he would greet them and welcome them to the winery and uh, always very hospitable. I, I got to meet Robert Mondavi one time. I was at the Wine Spectator big bottle tasting that they used to do at uh, Trevenia. Yeah. Um, I'd been invited by one of the Benzigers and I was standing in line to get a glass of wine and he walks up next to me and he hits me in the elbow and says, what are you going to try? And I said, I think I'm going to try that Zinfandel over there. And he goes, yeah, it's a good idea. He goes, I think I'll try that one also. And we each had the glass of wine. We kind of looked at each other, swirled it around. And we, he kind of looked at me. He goes, eh. And he poured it out and he got a glass of cab from something else. And, you know, it, it was a great interaction. We spoke for a moment, but, you know, I it would, checked it off my list. You know, I met a legend. So it was pretty cool. He was very, very gracious. And at that point, what vineyards that we would know now were you guys using? So uh, around Tokalon, the yeah. Tokalon Vineyard, uh, the one on Silverado Trail uh, uh, is still there. Um, trying to think, I don't know the address of Silverado Trail, but there was a there were several hundred acres there on Silverado Trail that that we'd use. Uh, we had probably at that time about 80 growers that uh, would, you know, we buy grapes from. Yeah. And the winery was fairly small then in 1970, 71. Uh, we were doing about, uh, well, let's see. I think it was around 350 tons a year, yeah. each harvest. So it was fairly small. And what was there at the and winery? What were you making? So we were making, uh, actually, good question. <laughs> Silvana Riesling, Chenin Blanc, uh, Petite Syrah, Cabernet Sauvignon, um, was, uh, there was a Gamay Rosé we made, yes, thanks Glenn, um, Moscato Canelli, I think it was, uh, and so, and a, so, and a Sauvignon Blanc, and that was in 1970, and then, then the Fumé Blanc came shortly after that. Um, so the Sauvignon Blancs and the Chenin Blancs, everything had residual sugar then. Right. And then shortly thereafter, I don't remember exactly what year, but early 70s, where the, the Fumé Blanc, basically Sauvignon Blanc, was dry, uh, would have some barrel age as well. Oh, we made a Chardonnay as well, of course. Um, Chardonnay without malolactic in those first years. And then, of course, malolactic came in on the Chardonnay later in the mid to late 70s. And, and was, so the Sauvignon Blanc was always a little residual sugar. Um, the Fumé Blanc was dry. And, and, and what was the story behind that? I think some of us know that, but being that you were there, was it a marketing decision? Was it a wine wanted to change the style of the wine? And, you know, can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So Robert uh, would get us together. There weren't too many of us then, or maybe <laughs> under 20 employees. Wow. And he would give us the uh, wines of the world speech. 
And the Wines of the World, world speech was, um, we have an opportunity to make wines equal to or better than the first growths of Europe. Uh, we have the weather, we have the soil, and we have some knowledge. <laughs> uh, he maybe didn't talk about knowledge too much, but anyway, in those days we had some knowledge. Um, so it was one of his trips to Europe, uh, tasting the Puy Fumé, and uh, thought, yeah, this is a much more food-friendly wine, and Robert was always looking at the wines to pair with food. Um, and that's, that's when it changed. So we stopped making Sauvignon Blanc and, and changed the Sauvignon Blanc name to Fumé Blanc. Oh, okay. So, so, so it was actually, a, it, it was, Sauvignon Blanc went away, essentially. Sauvignon Blanc went away. Because it did eventually come back, right? Because weren't there, I think I remember tasting one time them side by side, maybe in the, in the 80s or something, where they make both be, of them? It could have been the Woodbridge line or, oh, okay. Okay. or some other line. So he really imported all this from the knowledge from Europe, because there was no Davis program back then, was there at all? Could you go for a wine education sure. in 1970? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay, cool. It was limited, but there definitely was a, you could you could get an enology degree. What were his favorites wine when he came back? Do you know? His favorite wine? Yeah. What would, what would, what would Robert drink <laughs> at Go to Lunch, and what would he order? Uh Usually uh, Fumé Blanc uh, and the Cabernets. Man, good taste. <laughs> so, Glenn, I hear there's a really interesting story about you and your first interview at Mondavi. Well, <clears throat> I think it's interesting. Brad may not, but... Uh, <laughs> but um, I was kind of in between semesters in, in college in 1975, and my brother-in-law had gone to UC Davis and got an enology degree in the early 70s and had gone to Robert Mondavi Winery and began working there with Zelma and with Brad. Um, and he said, you know, well, Glenn, if you got some time, you should go up to Napa. And I lived in the East Bay, uh, San Francisco Bay Area at the time. Just go up there and work a harvest. It's really fun. So he said, go up and, and ask for Brad. You know, and I, I'm sure they're looking for people to work so no wine knowledge no wine interest really to speak of except that you know I was looking for a job so I was 20 and so I get to the winery and talk to the receptionist and said hey I'm looking for Brad and she said you know go out around the front of the winery over by the crush pit uh, I think he's out there because there was no way to communicate with employees in those days right. there was no, like no walkie talkies or yeah. anything so I'm just wandering around I walk out and at that point it was kind of the northeast corner of the winery was the grape receiving area, and we had a red crusher and a white crusher system set up there. And there was a crush pit down below where the grapes were received, and the grapes would, would go down into the must pumps and then up into the winery. So I walk around, and I finally see this guy down in the crush pit with a hammer in his hand, you know, tapping on the head of this must pump. I didn't know what it was at the time. but And I finally said, hey, are you Brad? And he looked up and he said, yeah, are you Glenn? And I said, yes. And he said, well, when can you start? <laughs> so that's my one and only job interview in 46 years. And <laughs> did that must pump work finally after hammering on it? He had the magic hammer for sure. Well, actually, it was, uh, was close to hammering on the must pump, but these must pumps had belts on them, uh, like a fan belt. And if... 
the, the must was being pumped up about 25 feet in the air. And uh, it was fine when the must was liquid, when you had juice and, and pumice, skins. But if you shut the pump off, the juice had run all down at the bottom. And then the pump would not pump it. Okay, it wouldn't, wouldn't start up again. So all I, all I was doing, and I was looking for my hammer this morning, but I didn't find it. Uh, uh, it was a wood handle with a brass head, because uh, brass, you know, won't damage equipment. Well, it'll damage the hammer. But I would use the, the wood handle part to put on the belts to tighten them up to start the, start the must pump up. That's so, what I was doing. So the belt wouldn't slip. You were the belt would slip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the hammer did become famous around the summer. You know, for years everybody something would break down, and they said, "Where's Brad? We need his hammer." Yeah, you should right. frame that on the wall. <laughs> oh, so but you still literally, use it. Literally, he would carry it around in his back pocket with his flashlight in the other pocket. Right. And so anytime you saw Brad, that's what you would see. We we always at Kenwood we always had the the magic um, crescent wrench, and when the day shift would go home. Um, uh, it was always a matter of don't let Mark take the wrench home because I think we only had one crescent wrench, you know, and, and, and you, we needed that wrench oh, yeah. um, on a daily basis. So, yeah, the magic rant, the wrench. But I also started in a similar way to Brad in terms of I wasn't at the top, though. I was at the bottom. So my first day, you know, you check in there, and, again, you don't know which which door to go through or anything to do. And, and Brad and maybe Chet at the time uh, had me go sweep some floors scrub a few floors so mm -hmm. I was starting at the bottom literally and then kind of the the rite of passage at Robert Mondavi at the time was to shovel out red for menors and maybe it's the same at all winds I don't know but <clears throat> Brad said you know go up to tank open the old cellar and ask for Mr. Mena so Mr. Mena was a very famous guy within the Robert Mondavi winery cellar because <clears throat> he didn't want to cross Mr. Mena <clears throat> So he got up there and he looked at me and he shook his head like this guy is never gonna get this done and he pointed to the tank and there's this gate you know about 18 inches in diameter and a foot high and, and of course you checked the co2 before you got in absolutely put your, not put your yeah. um, your harness on turn the fan on no and he pointed and he handed me a shovel and it said get in the tank and so he had a little sidekick Raphael, but um and they screamed and yelled at me for whatever it took, 40 minutes to get that fermenter shoveled out. And, but I went back the next day, so that was a good thing. Hey, passed. Yeah, you obviously enjoyed this. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, there is something about, you know, you do get a certain, the CO2, just the right amount of CO2 and the aromatics, it, it, it is a beautiful thing, like yeah. shoveling tanks. And, yeah. um, you know, if someone hands you a beer halfway through, that was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was ideal. Um, but so those were probably wood tanks, right? No, those tanks. Those there was, were some wood tanks in that cellar, but okay. that, that particular tank was a stainless, stainless tank. steel. Yeah, tanks, but yeah. unjacketed. There were several unjacketed tanks right. up in that cellar. Yeah. It's pretty amazing what Mondavi did for the wine industry, if not just basically created. Yeah. Well, and it's it's a great point, and and Brad followed this very closely, and he taught all of us along the way to share information. And Robert Mondavi was one that would, again, preach that. And, and he knew that the industry would move along faster if everyone was sharing certain information. And the biggest difference in wines is the vineyard, right? So 
a lot of people would hand you their winemaking procedures and say, go ahead and follow these, but you're using somebody else's fruit, so it's not going to be exactly the same. But the amount of information that that we were, you know, encouraged to share with other wineries, they would come by constantly. I mean, a couple yeah. a week that were just starting. How do you do this? Can we borrow a pump? And we would go visit other wineries and also learn from them. So yeah. it was one of those eras, I would say, a 10 or 15 year era there was so much information being passed back and forth that really did help the industry overall. Yeah, yeah you guys were being good neighbors. Yeah. That's it. Uh, I, have, I have one story I just want to tell. I'll promise I'll only keep it to one story. Well, maybe. We, we <laughs> hope not. We hope not. There's a reason why you're here, Brad. <laughs> This was like 1972, and uh, I told you that Robert would gather us together, together and give us the Wines of the World speech. And he always said, you know, at the end, he said, if you ever have any questions, please don't hesitate to ask. He says, but if you're asked to do something, uh, I'd prefer you do it first, and then you can ask questions afterwards. So, uh, you know, working in the cellar, and uh, again, there was probably only three or four of us in the cellar then and you'd get the uh, a work order basically saying what to do what tank what wine to move in from one tank to another and uh, this work order came down I looked at it and I gave it to uh, one of the cellar guys and and he asked me he says why are we why are we doing this so it was moving a, a Chenin Blanc free run into a Chenin Blanc press tank and uh I said, I have no idea. I said, the, it says to do it on this piece of paper. I said, but why don't you wait here a minute and uh, let me taste these two. And so I tasted the two wines and thought, yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense here. So I went up to the front office. Robert's door was always open. Uh, I'd always knock on the door and always address him, Mr. Mandavi, and ask him if he had a, a, a minute. And he said, sure, come on in. And so I told him what was going on, and he says, well, Brad, you know, Chenin Blanc, uh, we can get that bottled pretty quickly, and we can start getting money back in uh, on that, and we we kind of need the money, you know, we, we need the income. Uh, and I said, okay, but I said, I, I said, you said you wanted to make the best wine possible, and uh, I was just wondering about that. And he, so he, he said, well, let's go down and taste those wines. So he got up from behind the desk walked down in the cellar, we tasted those two wines. He said, yeah, you're right, don't blend them. So he didn't only talk the talk, he walked the talk. <laughs> and as Glenn said, you know, he was always sharing, bringing people in to share, you know, what winemaking procedures we're doing, how to make wines. Uh, we were encouraged to go out to other wineries and, uh, and see what they were doing as well. There weren't too many other wineries that uh, were doing what we were doing because uh, we were very interested in the sanitation all the way you know, through to the end uh, bottle of wine. And every employee was valued to do their part. Uh, it, was real, it was quite easy in those days you know, to have good employees because the... <laughs> The, basically, the, most of the employees would weed out the, the ones that just didn't run work too hard. Yeah. Um, but it was, uh, it was a true team that uh, worked together. I mean, at that point, you guys were a new winery, a new cellar. 
there weren't a lot of new sellers at that point, right? I mean, most of them would have been some of the old wineries that maybe had done a little uh, remodel and, and brought in some new equipment. But you guys were really the first of those new modern-day wineries. That's true. So Robert Mandavi, as I understand it, was the first new winery in Napa Valley since Prohibition. Right. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't until, I would say mid-70s when you started seeing some newer wineries popping up but we would have uh, I remember specifically uh, Christian Brothers was still in operation uh, in St. Lena and at Mount LaSalle and I don't know if it was their cellar master or somebody called me and said you know we have a problem with sanitation would you be willing to set, you know share your sanitation procedures uh, with us and I said absolutely uh, come on down and we had a binder basically of for 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 new people like glenn <laughs> uh we didn't even have it when glenn started i don't think yes yeah, so uh, to review uh review how to clean a tank how to clean a hose uh how to clean a pump a press whatever so i remember the guy coming down and uh said well can i just look in your binder i said no take it and make a copy of it and uh you know bring it back when you're finished so, I mean, that's how we shared information with other wineries. I think, it, uh, go ahead. I was just going to throw one other thing in there that thinking back at those days again, and I was just working in the cellar, but um, Mr. Mondavi would put together weekly tastings, generally at 9 o'clock Monday morning, and it was for employees. And it was not a formal tasting to speak of. And you didn't know as an employee if you were going to go or not. But Brad would be one, and other managers would go around and say, hey, you know, running up to the tasting this morning. And you didn't get a chance to say, gee, no, I'm right. not interested. You know, you put down what you were doing and would go up to the lab, and there'd be six, eight people a week, I would guess. Right. And it would be one variety each week, and it would be Robert Mondavi Wines versus the competition. Right. Blind, ah, blind good. tastings. Interesting. And and who was the competition at that time? Do you know by name? So there usually was uh, two or three European, European wines, okay. first rows, and then we would, you know, we'd have wines from Livermore. Uh, I don't recall in the Napa Valley who else we really had. Maybe actually. Beringer. Maybe Beringer. Yeah. But it was interesting, and Robert Mondavi would generally be at those tastings, you know, and he wanted to hear from us. So, again, somebody that grew up on Annie Greensprings on ice, you know. That's right. You didn't, <laughs> you couldn't say, I, I don't want to say what I think about the wines. He wanted to hear. Right. And so you gave those opinions, and it would reveal what the wines were, and he wanted to, you know, be in the mix as far as what people preferred, the Robert Mondavi wine in the mix. But... If, it, if we weren't the top wine, it wasn't a big deal. You know, he didn't stop out or anything. He would say, you know, what are we doing differently? What, what can we do differently to make our wines better? But those are always pretty interesting. And oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's no doubt when you're learning about tasting wine, it takes a long time to identify what it is that you like about things. And, and without the knowledge, it makes it even harder. So it would be somewhat intimidating with... Mr. Mandavi there, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I remember him. I remember seeing an old interview with him where he said it took 
like four to five years for him to get the employees to and individual employees to sort of buy into what he was doing that it was but but it was super important to him and and it was like doing those tastings that he yeah. he wanted everyone on the same page moving forward and it and and it wasn't like oh we're gonna train them in a year he saw it as like a four to five year thing of getting each individual person in that company moving together in the same direction and you'd think it would be intimidating but thinking back it wasn't he wasn't that kind of guy he wouldn't sit there and take a deep breath you know if you'd say that you like wine six and it wasn't a very good wine you know he would listen he would pay attention and always interested in the overall results and and didn't discount the results because of who was giving their opinion so that was interesting i remember we were at a celebration of um mr mondavi's life after he passed away which there were many and I remember we were standing in this group of people, and it was you, Brad, and Zelma, Phil, maybe Rich, and some other people. And I just saw this, you know, moment. And I said to all of you, did you know at the time that you were a part of something special? Or was it only in retrospect that you realized what you had created? And everybody immediately said, oh, no, we knew. We knew at the time that we were creating something special, which I thought was really cool yeah and robert demonstrated uh time and time again his trust in employees and respect for employees uh there was one other time not a story a reality here uh <laughs> where we were making pinot noir as well at robert mandavi winery and uh, we were making it like you would make a bordeaux wine uh <laughs> And this was, you know, early 70s, and I remember 1974, we made a, uh, a Pinot Noir, uh, standard Pinot Noir, and a Pinot Noir Reserve. And we started getting some uh, feedback from consumers saying, you know, we don't see a lot of difference in these wines. Um, so there was a tasting with Robert and salespeople, and, and uh, Michael Mandavi was there. It was before Tim came. Um, and we taste these wines blind. There was probably 10 Pinot Noirs, uh, first gross, as well as Mondavi. And uh, none of us got it right. None of us picked out the reserve uh, ahead of the, the non-reserve. So Robert said, pull it all off the market. We're not going to sell that reserve. So Seriously? And, and, and he pulled it all off? Yep. That's fascinating. And, and was it the wine i mean looking back on it now was it that those two or that reserve wine didn't rate rank high enough against those other first growth wines or the fact that it didn't show well against your own wine i mean you know you know where i'm going with this yes like like what was the motivating factor to pull it all in so uh as i recall actually the the non-reserve wine showed better than the reserve wine uh, and of course, I mean, reserves usually are more expensive than the non-reserves. So what what he felt is that I don't really want to have misrepresent, you know, anyone or any or wines to say that they're reserved when we don't think they're exceptional. When you think about what like what was the difference? Was it that the reserve spent an additional three months in oak, or you know, <laughs> something like that, probably. Yeah, and again, the way we were making Pinots then, it was more, um, uh, more extracted. More extracted, you had more heat during uh, alcoholic fermentation. So a lot of times these Pinots were not 
you know, delicate like they should be. The, they were a little hot in the taste, and uh, the nose was uh, kind of diluted in a way. Uh, and, and, and that was probably during the time where Pinot grew in the block right next door to Cabernet also, right? You know, I mean, it, good point, it, yeah. It wasn't until the 80s, probably replanting of California, that you started to see them identify that Pinot needed a cooler site and, and whatnot. So I've always kind of wondered about that also. Absolutely. You're, that's a good point because Pinots were grown in the middle and upper end of Napa Valley where it's warmer. And Carneros was just starting to come in in those years. And uh, Pinot was definitely planted in the wrong place. Yeah. Uh, had too much crop on and uh you know was was probably picked before it was really uh mature on the vine and the same was true with chardonnay yeah. you know it was also planted throughout the valley right before it got pushed to right. carneros and then just one quick story on the chardonnay in terms of making stylistic changes and how that how those things would work at the winery but you mentioned that in earlier Chardonnays there was no malolactic and it was all tank fermented um, my first couple of years in the cellar I one of the years I was running the centrifuges and we would get the Chardonnay in put it in a roto tank roto tank you know get significant skin contact <laughs> you oh. know press it and then centrifuge the solids out of it you know and then ferment it uh. and so I don't know who came along and said hey we should Try barrel fermenting, you know, some of the Chardonnay, and it was a big deal because we didn't do a lot of barrel work during harvest in those days. And Rich right. Arnold mentioned Rich earlier, and he was back from UC Davis at that point. It might have been '76, and so he was put in charge by Zoma of this experimental barrel fermentation work. So in the middle of this empty barrel room at the winery, I think there was eight barrels that we put Chardonnay into in let it ferment in barrels and it was kind of a, one of those things we would all walk by and watch and <laughs> look at it and it got close to the end of fermentation and they got stuck Ugh. and so because the barrel room was pretty chilly and so rich this is true he got in his car and went down to montgomery ward in napa bought two electric blankets yeah. <laughs> excellent and, and plugged them in and laid them over the barrels and they, they finally finished and everybody loved the results, right? Yeah. But we had no experience with yeah. barrel fermenting, you know, how to get the, how to rack the clean wine off the lees, and let alone malolactic to follow up from that. So the following year, though, even though we didn't know what we were doing, I think we barrel fermented like 2,500 barrels. So yeah. from eight wow. to 2,500, but that was Mr. Madabi. You know, he said, Wait, that's hey. a lot of electric blankets. <laughs> <laughs> we, we figured that part out without the blankets. But once we, Hit on something that that he was happy with from a quality perspective. He and the winemaking team. It was like go because it was going to be laser focused. Yeah. yeah, and then you think about the whole idea of using centrifuges. Like, I we found a centrifuge at Lassiter, you know, from the Grand Cru days, and sure. um, and Kenwood had one that they had stopped using by the time I got there. But just how much that used to beat up the juice and you know aerate it and stuff and. Um, and, and and then you kind of flash forward to everything we're doing now, and man, they made some really good. You guys made some really good wines back there with no technology and quote unquote not knowing what you're doing. And 
Now we have optical sorters that make everything, you know, perfect. Perfect. (laughs) You know, Brad, you were mentioning where Pinot was incorrectly grown. And you also mentioned that Carneros was just coming on. You've seen the valley just explode with acreage. Um, Tell us about the good and the bad of that. Uh, Where it's grown, what, what shouldn't be there, what is, what's your favorite? Well, that's a that's a good topic. Um, so vineyards basically, you know, need to be planted in well-drained, healthy soil. Uh, Napa Valley, we get beautiful weather, so there's no problem ripening fruit. Um, but vineyards, you know, starting off with the the right variety and the right climate zone with the right soil and the drainage. Uh, I would say somewhere in the, you know, the boom which started early 80s, uh, all the way, actually still is booming today. Uh, real estate uh, was being sold everywhere, and what was an, a good acre back then? Well, let's see. Back in the in the 70s, I mean, an acre would be around eight thousand dollars. And today. Well, it, it it was ag preserve back then, but um, it was not really that in forest, so you could actually buy a few acres. But when ag preserve really came in strong was more in the mid-70s, and then it was limited to 20 acres to start with, and now it's 40 acres. Um, so th- there were a lot of land sold in areas where um, you didn't have good drainage, um, you didn't have good soil, and vineyards were planted there. And then, you know, unfortunately, three or four years later, you find out these vines aren't happy, and for sure the grapes aren't happy. <laughs> so you, you couldn't make very good wine off those vines. Um, I, you know, I think even today, still, you see uh, vineyard land for sale in the Napa Valley, and if you if you look into that to see what varieties being planted there and what wines are being made from that, um, uh, you may you may think twice about purchasing that. I can that imagine, right? <laughs> what do you think is the most valuable property in Napa? The single best in your mind. It depends on the variety, but I mean Calistoga, uh, Saint Helena. Uh, the foothills, the hills, Atlas Peak, Mount Veter. Uh, there's some Everywhere. beautiful, yeah. There's some beautiful growing uh, areas. Now there's some areas that are in the middle of the valley. <laughs> we won't talk about too much about that, but uh, they have a hard time with vines surviving because there's uh, there's boron in the soil sometimes. There's you know hot springs. We know about the geysers in Calistoga. Those those hot uh, uh, veins run all the way down to the middle of the valley, and you don't want that underneath your roots. <laughs> who did we talk to? It was Will Buckland the other day who said when Kundi did no, their was, caves. Yeah, when the Kundis had to air condition it. Yeah, well, <laughs> when the Kundis built their caves, 
um, they could never got to the temperature that they wanted, and they ended up actually putting in air conditioning to cool it. And, you know, there's warm springs, obviously, that run underneath it there. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's really interesting to hear what you say about that because I think the general public and, and you know, we make fun of Napa Valley as being the only thing to grow there is Cabernet, and it's all you know exceptional quote unquote you know and 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 it's not and and then i i go back to when we had what was the gentleman from bounty hunter mark pope yeah mark pope mark pope we had him on the show very early on and he referenced the era of neighbor pricing whereas you know well my neighbor's getting ten thousand dollars a ton for his so i should get twelve thousand for mine or you could put that out to bottle pricing too and i'm wondering if either of you have any thoughts on that or if you want to you know, think what maybe Mr. Mandavi would, you know, his position might be on that. Because you guys would be closer to him than anyone we've met at this point. So, yeah, back in the 70s and before, uh, grape pricing pretty much was set by Gallo. And Gallo had two uh, wineries in the Napa Valley, the large (laughs) co-op and the small co-op, both located uh, north and south of St. Lena. So are those buildings still in existence? They are. Facilities? They are. Well, they're, they're been retrofitted, but they're still in the same location. And, and are, are they are they privately held wineries, or does Gallo still run them? No, Gallo sold both of them. Um, so the uh, where's the big bunny? Uh, Hall. Hall. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> Hall was a large co-op. Yep. And then uh, on the other side of Krug, help me with the name. They just cut the eucalyptus trees down there, uh, right past Deer Park Road, going north, on the right-hand side. Well, they <laughs> love to cut those down now, don't they? Mark, mark them. Mark them, right. Thank you. Good pull, man. Yeah. And I think Mondavi owns, or Gallo owns Markham now, right? Or no? No, that's owned by, I believe, uh, Asians, I believe. Okay. I believe. Did Constellation, did Mondavi have a connection with Markham for no. a while? No? Okay. No. So, anyway, sorry. So, uh, somewhere in the 70s, and I think this was after Tim came on in 75 out of college, uh, started looking, because we really, we really kind of thought that you bring us any grapes and we can make a wonderful wine at Mondavi. Uh, then we started finding that, yeah, there's a difference in the vineyards. <laughs> and started all different types of experimentation, uh, still picking in gondolas then, but we would uh, take CO2 cylinders out in the vineyard and we'd blanket the grapes with CO2 what? on their way into the crush pad. Now, the crush pad was basically you'd pick up the whole gondola and you'd dump it into this big hopper and then we'd fog with CO2 over those grapes. We protected the grapes, mostly whites, but we'd do it with the reds too all the way through uh, fermentation, well, until they started ferment to have their own CO2. Um, so we found out that, okay, all vineyards are not created equal, and sometimes what would really happen is if someone found that Cabernet was being sold for more than, let's say, Merlot, all of a sudden that was Cabernet the, the vineyard grower, grower would have in his in his vineyard, and he would get Cabernet prices for those grapes. Nice. But they weren't Cabernet, they were Merlot. Right. And Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay, kind of the same thing. Uh, 
different types of, of Sauvignon Blanc and, and Chardonnay were being grown out there. Uh, and it was not a, a Chardonnay clone at all. Anyway, so Robert started partnering with the growers and said, look, you know, if you can grow these grapes better, and we didn't know a lot about thinning in those days, but, you know, we knew we wanted less crop on the vines. So we, you know, basically encouraged the, the grower to drop fruit, to have less fruit on the vines, so you'd have more flavor, more color, more stable color. And we'd bring the grower in after the harvest to taste the, his individual or her individual lot. And then Robert started saying, no, we're going to pay him more for these grapes. So it went from Gallo setting the price now to Mandavi establishing the price. And then I'm not sure if that was when, in the late 90s, maybe early 2000s, where California said, no, we'll take over this grape pricing. <laughs> And now you have published pricing uh, put out by California saying that in this district, if you're sailing an AVA or, or Hell Mountain or whatever, this is the base price that you would pay for grapes. And what the grower does then is say, okay, well, my Cabernet is worth 8000 a ton, but if you really want it, you can pay another 20 or 30% premium on top of that. So it would be 8000 plus that. And, and so was that the start of the crop report, or was that something different? I think that was the start of the crop report. Right, right. And now they've figured out a way to manipulate that. So I always love looking at the crop report and seeing those two acres at $40,000 a ton, you know, wondering right. who, who did that. So. Um, <laughs> um, so, so Glenn, um, you are still, or you've just recently retired from Mondavi. Um, the two of you worked together for how long? Uh, so I took an early retirement from Mandavi in uh, February of 99. In 99, okay. So well, almost 25 years. Yeah, okay. And then you went on to Sawyer Cellars at that point? Correct. Okay. Went on to Sawyer Cellars. Okay. Uh, and Sawyer Cellars sold in 2012, and I stayed on for a few years with Fully, uh, Bill Fully, of uh, Fully Johnson. Right. And then... Uh, uh, left there in November of 15, 2015. Right. And so in 99, um, what, what, when, was the, when was the purchase of Mondavi? Late 2004. Okay, okay. Um, and so, so when Brad left, your position was what? You were production manager? So the longest position I held there was vice president of production operation, the last, I don't know, five years, I don't remember what title I had. There was a lot going on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, it was a different and, title, let's okay. just put it that way. And, and what was your transition from working, Glenn, uh, and from working, being a seller rat, you know, and obviously probably going through seller supervisor and stuff. Can you kind of tell us where, where, you're, where you moved through? Sure. Well, it, <laughs> that interview with Brad was actually the only interview I'd ever had. Right. So as time marches on, you know, through those years with Brad and the Mandavis, they would just ask us to do different things along the way. Can you help do this now? You know, we want to make you the manager of this, whatever it might be. So a lot of different <coughs> production-related positions. <coughs> Worked in finance for a little while in the 90s. And then we started a renovation project in probably 97, 98. 
it became known as the Tokalon Project. Right. And so the Madavis asked me to manage that project. So that was about a three-year, three-year plus, uh, working with the architects and the family to get dialed in on the design that they wanted. Right. And that was, for our listeners, that was um, when Mondavi introduced, at least to me, it was when you introduced that oak tank room that no one had ever seen really anything like in in California. Um, it was it was unbelievable. It was beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. So, yeah. You, so you guys were all, or you were part of that. That's yeah. really cool. And so that was the construction of that building where those oak tanks are and the cellar that's below that for barrel storage and the renovation of basically the visitor center. Right. The rest of the production pretty much stayed intact at that point. Okay. And so then it was, when that project wrapped up, um, I was working with Clay Gregory. Clay was the general manager and I was working under Clay as assistant general manager, I think was the title. And then after the Constellation acquisition, uh, they asked me to remain as the general manager for Robert Mondavi, which I've been done that now since yeah. 2000 early 2005 until just this last year it's a good run not a bad run <laughs> yeah you know i was talking to some people yesterday at the winery and i was up there for a couple of meetings and we were in the vineyard room and and they said you know I, we don't know anybody that works that long at the same location anymore and i looked out at the vineyard and i said well why would you ever want to leave right You're that's just right in a fun business working with great people and uh beautiful spot so, so true are, are are there any things there at the winery that you that you you're the only one who knows where that valve is or where that you know anything so they're going to call you back in 10 years and go hey remember you know i i don't think so you know i would always lean on the maintenance guys to know everything right they, they do know where everything is and uh, we did put a time capsule into the building when the renovation was underway so there's a time capsule sitting there somewhere with a lot of information about Robert Mondavi and pictures and stuff. Um, I saw. When is that supposed to be dug up? Ever? Another 50 years. Okay. You know, so <laughs> it'll remain a Stay mystery. <laughs> but I don't think so. And uh, again, learning from Brad and, and Mr. Mondavi, I'm not a guy to keep secrets. So anything that right. I know, right. uh, the new general manager that's there now, I just talked with him yesterday. I'm giving him everything that I really know. Right, so it, yeah. it's it's about making sure that people can continue on with with the tradition of the winery. That's awesome. Um, I, I wanted you guys or Brad to speak about this wine that we're tasting, if you don't mind, this 2012 Cab, um, and tell us a little bit about where the vineyard's from, and you know, and Lido Cellars, and yes, and Lido Cellars, <laughs> and, um, and and yeah, how did Lido Cellars come about? And let's talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. Uh, let's start with the 2012 cab, and I'm going to let Lisa talk about how Lido started. So, um, so I was at Sawyer from '99 uh, until it sold in 2012, and in 2008 is when Lido uh, Cellars started. But I didn't want to make any wines that would be in competition with Sawyer because I was a winemaker there. So we just made Chardonnay for Lido. 2008, 9, 10, 11. And then when I saw Sawyer was selling, Lisa and I talked and I said, you know, I'd like to make a Cabernet this year. So we were actually uh, uh, making wines at Verosa Cellars, which is off of Pratt Avenue in St. Helena. And this vineyard uh, has been in the Verosa family for 
you know, over a hundred years. And he had some Cabernet Sauvignon and he called this old vine and he had new vine. Well, the old vine then uh, was 45 years old and the new vine was 27 years old. Uh, the old vine was dry farmed. <laughs> new vine uh, did have some drip irrigation on it. Uh, the old vine was uh, big gnarly vines you can imagine and uh, producing about maybe one and a quarter to one and a half tons per acre. So we bought some of those Cabernet uh, grapes, both from the old and new, and we kept them separate, kept the old vine separate from the new. And when we were pressing the, uh, the 2012 Cabernet old vine, just an intense color, um, wonderful flavor, uh, the new vine was also nice, but definitely different than the old vine. And we wanted to bottle the old vine separate, but we didn't want to use the word reserve on it. Uh, so actually Lisa came up with the exceptional selection, which the wine's called uh, for 2012. I remember, I remember when we drain oh, that tank wait we only made 46 cases of this too <laughs> yeah it made no financial sense whatsoever and chet was our but seller none of it does. That, that is true so chet who was also in the mandavi cellar uh was helping us with lido at the time and chet um chet's a guy that doesn't drink wine he's a beer guy and and his beer is um Coors, yeah, something light with the Blue Mountains. I, I can't stand it. Not really a wine guy, but when he opened that valve and we drained that tank, I could hear him say, wow. And and for that to come out of his mouth, uh, that was that was something, yeah, because he'd seen it all. And uh, it made no sense to keep it separate, but it was so beautiful we did. And then we were talking about... Brad said, well, it's the reserve. And, and I said, what does reserve mean these days? It might have meant something back in the day, but like, what does it really mean? And we were talking, I said, well, you know, it's just, it's exceptional. It stands out from everything else. I wonder if we could call it that. And uh, I talked with our label designer and made sure it was a marketing term, you know, that could be used on a label. And it was, and that's how we came up with it. We don't make it every year. Um, just when things are truly exceptional. So, yeah. And then Lido Cellars, uh, it was uh, early 08, and Brad asked me to lunch. We were dating at the time, and he said, you know, I've always wanted my own brand. I said, that's great. He says, well, I was thinking it was something we could do together. And I said, between the two of us and our experience, don't we know better? Like, why on earth would we do something like that? He says, well, it's my plan B. It's something I really want to do. So I tell people there was a lot of ways uh, to lose money in 08. And so uh, as we were watching, you know, everything just bleed dry, it's like, oh, let's, let's buy some fruit. Why not? And then we bought uh, the first Chardonnay and started out with 200 cases of uh, Chardonnay from uh, Cuvisson's Vineyard. And that's how we started out. And then here we are, and we added the cab. And how about the name? The name. Yeah, Lido Cellars. So I've always worked in a team environment, not on my own. So it's kind of lonely coming up with brand names when it's just you. Um, so our attorney was rejecting all these names. And I thought, well, it's our baby. So I looked in a baby names book. 
and I didn't want to do uh, anything French for a variety of reasons. And I started looking at what the names meant first, and I saw the meaning, and it was uh, the hidden one, or hidden from view. And it's Lido, it's derived from Greek mythology. And I thought that's so perfect, because Brad's always been behind the scenes, um, working for other people, and this is his chance, you know, to come out and be seen. So that's where the name comes from. Yeah. That's been, it's been an adventure, that's for sure. Well, I'm loving this wine. It's really very, very, very it's nice. It's beautiful and it's very young. It's got a lot of, you can see that it's going to be around for a long time. Yeah. Well, then some of the other wines that you've made, you've made some interesting decisions on <laughs> varietals to play around with. We, we have. And I mean, part of that is giving Brad an opportunity to, to have fun in the cellar. You know, when you're making wine for other people, at the end of the day, it's at their direction and it's what they want. So, you know, I'll get a phone call. Like, we find vineyard sources in the most wacky ways, mostly because of all of our interactions with Rutherford Equipment. And uh, where were you in Lake County, Red Hills District? And you said, what do I think about, what was that up there? Malbec. Malbec. What do you think about Malbec? I'd like to play around with some Malbec. And what about a rosé of Malbec? And then you found the Muscat Canelli from Ralph out at Windsor Oaks. And you said, well, that sounds like fun. Let's, let's do that. It's like, okay, you know, we're, we're going to have to sell it. Right. Um, right. You know, we can, make wine, <laughs> we can make wine all day long. But I think that it's just been, it's been great to see you have fun. And the Pinot Noir we did from Mount Veter. I mean, we've, yeah, we've done some crazy stuff. And it's really just for ourselves. Like, and, and, you know, hopefully other people like it, but it's, it's really, so there it's was, been for you. Uh, I was delivering some equipment to a winery in Yachtville and started talking with the, I guess he was a winemaker there and, and, uh, asked him what varieties they make. And he says, oh, well, we get some uh, Riesling from Rutherford. Oh, said, the Riesling. Riesling. Yeah. I said, uh, where would it be in Rutherford? And he said, oh, well, these vines are, they've got to be. 60 years old and they only have like two acres and they're right behind the old schoolhouse in uh in rutherford are you listening to this cody (laughs) (laughs) and i said oh man i said do you do you ever sell any of those grapes (laughs) and he said well maybe and he said well how much would you want i said well you know a ton or a half a ton so uh these were old vine Riesling, <laughs> and uh, we made that in for two years, and then they tore the vineyard out. Yeah. yeah, that was unfortunate. Um, so you know, there's an expectation because we're here in Napa. I like to call this the the warehouse district. Sounds sounds fancier than it is, but um, you know, it, it it works for us. Um, you know, we're short a hundred million dollars. So <laughs> being in an industrial area works well for us, but there's still an expectation because we're in Napa that we're going to do the cabs and all of that. And, and we do. Um, and I, and I think we make them well. So does everybody else. Um, so it's fun to do the other things and have that variety. Yeah. I mean, first of all, the days of all of tree line driveways going to grand estates, 
for the most part is over, right? Yeah. You know, there's a lot of wine made in warehouses and a lot of really good wine made in warehouses. Right. Um, and, and good for you guys. And so people, when they're in Napa, they can come taste here, right? Right. Open and by appointment. Because of our permit. Oh, yeah. Always yes. by appointment, but you can make an appointment at the door. Right. Um, <laughs> But one of the things that we were talking about when we established this brand is what, what do we want the brand to be? Um, you know, we want to make wines where we're interfering as little as possible. Uh, they stay true to varietal complexity. And as far as the experience, the hospitality experience, we want people to taste wines with the people that made them. So oftentimes people will come here and say, wow, this is, this is what Napa used to be back, you know, in the 80s, you know, where you actually get to sit down and talk to the people. Um, so yeah, we host all of our own tastings. Um, it it's can be you know we can only do two or two a day. Right. I mean, definitely not more than that. But it's intimate. We sit around the table here like we are now, and uh, we really let our guests drive the conversations. And it's it's fun to get people to sit down here because they'll ask questions that you know you won't ask in another environment. So it's like everything you always wanted to know about wine, but we're afraid to ask. Right. We definitely have those moments. So what are the current what are the current releases? Well, we're in our we just released our 2017 reds. Um, and then we have a rosé, your Muscat Canelli, um, uh, for Lido. And then we created uh, in 18, we might have had a little bit of extra uh, wine. So we created a second label, um, oh, yes. <laughs> uh, that, uh, that is more of an everyday drinking wine. Um, we cut down on costs through packaging, um, you know, and try to reduce the cost that way. And that's our Marie Howard line. My middle name is Marie and Brad's middle name is Howard. So we have fun with that. We have, uh, what Sonoma County Pinot Noir. We're doing a all back. It just depends. Did you say Muscat Canelli Rosé? No, no. we oh. did a Muscat Canelli and <laughs> a Rosé. Like, Wait a minute. We should, really, we should really open the Muscat Canelli. It's so different. Sure. We should do that. But yeah, that's, that's what we're doing here. Yeah. Well, if you're going to do that, why don't you tell us about what we're drinking? This 2012. Well, no, this is... What was, no, we just I did. did. Okay, did, I'm yeah, sorry. Did, so, that. yeah. Sorry. Okay. So, so then, you know, I, I'm curious what the two of you have been in the business longer than, than any of us or us combined. Um, I was born in 1970, Bart. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm just kind of curious, like, do you have any thoughts about where the industry is going? Um, and, and not trying to throw anyone under the bus, just, you know, I mean, whether it's, um, weather change or wine styles or things that, things that you, I mean, I think we all miss the old days to some extent, but, and then things that have happened in the business that, um, are really positive that, you know, that you like seeing. Um, and, and if you don't really have any thoughts, it's quite all right. Yes, exactly. Like this <laughs> 1970 Napa Valley cab at you see that 12%. Al- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 12% alcohol. Um. Well, what we see today is the uh, guests that are coming to Napa Valley. Uh, it's not their first time to Napa Valley. And uh, they seem really more interested in uh, education. You know, what's behind the winemaking, what's involved in the winemaking. Um, I would refer to it very similar to a, to fine dining, to a restaurant. You know, 
you find a restaurant that you like, you, the, how the food is uh, prepared, how it's made, uh, there usually is a chef in the kitchen that's making that happen. <laughs> and, and with wines, it's pretty much the same thing. You know, if you find a wine you really like, uh, pursue that and find out more about, you know, the winemaking style and, and what makes it uh, what it is. Um, so we do have, I mean, the guests we get are more, uh, they've been to uh, a lot of the, the very fancy places and uh, they've seen that now and, and now they want to, you know, learn more about wine. And at the learning more about wine in a traditional tasting room, is is challenging because uh, tasting staff is usually given uh, kind of a, uh, uh, a refined rehearsal right. what to say and they're incentivized. Uh, that's right, and they don't uh, they're not given a lot of information about you know what percentage of malolactic is this Chardonnay through is it 100 percent or is it 60 percent or no percent. Uh, the smaller wineries are able to do that uh, more. And when I say small wineries, I think there's, you know, you can be 20 or 30,000 cases and, and you'll get that type of reception. Uh, so where the wine industry is going, I, it's, it's unfortunate that I don't see a lot of uh, uh, other family members getting involved in family wineries. Uh, it is a lot of work, it's what we call it a labor of love, and uh, there's also, uh, it's expensive to, to operate a winery. So can you make more money at doing something else? Probably. <laughs> does it have the same enjoyment that uh, making wine does? Probably not, but um, I think a lot of the times what happens, and we just saw it happen last week with Frank family, yep. Um, that you, you have some interest, but not enough interest really to carry that brand on with the family. Yeah, and, and, and it seems, um, yeah, it, it's hard to carry on any sort of family business. I mean, whether you're a winery or a dairy or, or, or an old sure. bakery, you know, someone doesn't want to work, someone doesn't want to go to the dairy and milk every morning. They want to live in town, you know, and but then they want their part of their inheritance, you know, and, and it makes it difficult. Um, you know, that's why a lot of wineries become consolidated. Um, so, yeah, it's unfortunate. That's why I don't have a partner. <laughs> you know, we're all hearing about a lot of shortages right now, especially glass. Are you having those kinds of problems right now? Absolutely. <laughs> How bad is it out there? Uh, so if you can get glass, you're going to pay a premium. Uh, I think there was three. I think there was three extra lines on the glass invoice for just pay uh, surcharges that I've never even heard of. Yeah. I I I just recently <laughs> um, got some glass. It's really interesting. Um, my the glass company I was using at the time asked me a while back to commit to what I needed over the next two years, and they would give me that price. And I was a little slow actually going through that glass because I'm a small business and sales and, you know, cash flow. So the last conversation we had, I had like 200 cases that had my name on it. And they said, do you really need it? And I said, you know, I don't. I didn't make as much wine that year. 
Um, but I need like 42 cases to complete what I have in stock to finish a bottling. And they said, fine. And um, so I got the invoice and there were surcharges and there were tariffs. Um, but the other thing that amazed me is it went from $8.20 a case to $13.77 a case. And I said, you know, and then they charged me storage on the glass that didn't exist because, you know, I, I just don't understand it. And my poor salesperson, you know, it's not her fault. It's just all comes, right. you know, from above trickle and down. trickle down and stuff. But yeah, it's going to be hard. I mean, I was wondering with that last invoice, what's as as producers, what are we all going to do? I mean, when that wine goes to market. I mean, we're going to have to pass at least some of it on yeah. to the consumer and, or our wholesale partners or, or whatever. I mean, there's just, it's not sustainable to absorb that long term. Yeah. That's, I was so happy to see 60 Minutes do that article on the ports a couple of weeks ago because I've, I've felt like an idiot at the hotel trying to explain to some of our guests sometimes why I don't have pickles, why I don't have bullet bourbon, why, I mean, there's, there's things that I try and get that... I just can't. Uh, some some French champagne. I, I just they. I can't get it. Um, so it was and and I've had trouble, you know, explaining that to people. They think maybe you're doing something wrong. You're not ordering correctly, or you didn't have any forethought, or whatever it is. But it's it's just every industry, and the it's like a big ball of string um, that's all tied up together, and no one knows how to undo the knot. Um, <laughs> we actually we actually rented some. What do you call them? Short-term storage space locker, and we've we've been stashing bottling supplies yeah. in there because I mean we don't have room for it. But at the same time, you know what little we're gonna bottle of uh, you know 2020 reds, uh, you know we we need to bottle them. I, they can't they can't sit in the barrel or the tank. So yeah. 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 What about you? I mean, Glenn, as you're leaving Mandavi, like what was supply chain? Did you guys have issues or same, no? Same story. Yeah. I, I mean, that's that's makes me feel a little bit better knowing that, you know, a large company like that has the same problems. Of course they do. I, I actually think sometimes maybe some of the small wineries are fortunate that they can, they can get it because you're ordering truckloads at a time. Um, and small wineries call in and say, hey, I need 120 cases, and they may just be sitting on a couple pallets, and you're lucky that you might get it, whereas, um, you know, you guys place your orders well in advance, and, um, and then if it doesn't come in, um, it it's, it's just destroys the timeline. Yeah. Um, and it goes back to your question earlier about, you know, where is the industry going, and, and the, the biggest, the best word to use is just there's a lot of challenges everywhere I mean, you look at the smoke issues you know the last few years <laughs> the supply chain issues you know understanding the consumers you know it's it's a very tricky market out there now because from what we all read and hear consumers may not be as loyal as they once were right they yeah. they might love the Lido cab right next weekend for a dinner but it doesn't mean they're going to come by two more cases because they're going to try something else the next week. So yeah. it's a little challenging on every front. Yeah. And <coughs> you can see why some family members are saying, you know what? 
I watched my mom and dad work really hard in this industry. Yeah. And yeah, they did fine, but I don't want to put that kind of effort in. So. Yeah, it's just too unpredictable. Yeah. And, and then could you talk a little about um, Rutherford Rental? Because we have a lot of people in the industry that um, uh, listen to the show. And my guess is they've all heard of Rutherford Rental or rented from you. Um, but those that don't, could you please um, you know, talk about it? And um, it's certainly been a business that has grown and um is pretty pretty important to a lot of companies. Well, you should tell them how, why you started it, really, and when. So, yeah, in 1991 is when Rutherford Equipment started. I started with a pressure washer on a trailer and a couple tanks, and I stored them in my, stored them in my backyard. <laughs> so why I started it is just, uh, uh, Glenn kind of touched on it, that Edmund Dobby has... Uh, wineries were starting to be built in the Napa Valley we'd get a lot of calls to say hey do you have a hose I can borrow or a pump I can borrow or a crusher I could borrow or whatever it might be um, and I thought well there might be some some merit in renting uh, equipment uh, so that's when it started in 91 of just after hours and on weekends and uh uh, it was your side hustle, as the kids it was say. My side hustle. Yeah. And Dave Paddock, that worked for us at Mondavi for a number of years, a uh, great guy. Uh, uh, Dave, Dave used to sell Dietrich Earth for a company, and uh, when he left there, he came to Mondavi, and I thought, well, Dave's kind of a sales guy, but a soft-spoken salesperson. And so I said, Dave, would you mind going around to different wineries and giving them our little pamphlets to let them know you know what we have to rent so definitely not any uh website or <laughs> <laughs> anything like that but the marketing was really word of mouth or is that right yeah, yeah. it was yeah. word of mouth yeah. and uh, uh and it's grown a little bit since then yeah we when you um so in 08 i had so I started out in production, and I went to the dark side of sales and marketing. And when Brad and I were dating, I was the dark side and had a job where I was traveling the country and doing all that. And he said, you know, I have this business. It's called, you know, I rent wine equipment, Rutherford Equipment Rental, you know, and I'm going to have to sell it or grow it. You know, what do you think about operating it? And I'm sure I said something really snotty, like, I don't think you could afford me and something like that. <laughs> But he came back and he says, well, maybe you can't afford not to. Like, your lifestyle right now, like, that's not sustainable. So I tell people that I traded in my frequent flyer miles and my high heels for boots and a forklift license. And I've been happier ever since. And we got a website and started putting in standard operating procedures and had actual work orders. Brad had, I don't know how he did it, it was all in a spiral notebook. And he knew who had what tanks, and there was—I have no idea how he operated the business. I remember your early—I <laughs> I remember your early years of, oh, of managing it, Lisa. And it was hard. There were days where you you would call back and go, "Can we go over this again?" Oh yeah, <laughs> you know. Oh no. Um, and then and then when it's rentals, it's hard because unlike someone just turning over a car, 
if someone had a problem, they can't enter or can't empty the tank on the day they said they were mm-hmm. going to empty the tank or the bottling truck was late or whatever. The glass was late. The glass was late. <laughs> it just rolls downhill, right? Everybody gets pushed back and stuff. Yeah, it's um, definitely challenging, but I think that's, you know, I think that's our strong point. Like everybody on our team has winemaking experience. So we're not just renting widgets. When we're talking with someone, we're a part of the seller team. And when we're training new people, like now we have a, you know, rental software and all the things, but even talking with the software companies and they're telling me how to manage my inventory and saying, well, the contract ends on this date and it's ready to rent, you know, that afternoon. And I'm saying, well, that's just not how it, that's just not how it works. Um, So we have to put buffers in there and have, backups and things like that because really it's you know it's our customers most valuable asset for the most part is you know either inside or touching you know our equipment and and that's the most important thing is caring for it and making sure you know that that it gets to bottle and and that's a huge responsibility that you know we take pretty seriously we don't rent anything that we wouldn't use on our own wine so but yeah a, i've so, learned a lot of lessons yeah. over the last 12 years so give us a it started out with a pressure washer and two i'm guessing maybe two five or six hundred gallon tanks um we won't go through all the equipment but how many tanks do you have now and what what do they range from they i know they range from 125 gallons and go up to how big uh they go up to three thousand gallon and how many do you have that's hard to say we're ordering more all the time. <laughs> we just ordered say, six more yesterday. I'd say 300. Something like that. 300 or so, yeah. That's, that's the size of a large winery. <laughs> and everything is portable. And our customers range from, you know, like Dane sellers or Lido sellers, you know, limited production wineries, up to larger wineries. You know, maybe they want to do a smaller lot just for their wine club, or maybe they want to experiment. Um, the one thing that we don't rent because we could not figure it out is grape processing equipment because again to your point you know you can't say well my grapes are going to come in on wednesday for sure and i'll be done by friday people have asked us to do it yeah no it's it's impossible we have sanitation equipment barrel washers um or barrel steamers i should say filtration tanks and then bottling equipment large format vacuum corkers is one of our biggest items yeah i mean it's a matter of how many headaches do you want to give yourself right so Nothing, nothing with too many electronics. I will tell you that. Secret that he taught us a long time ago, and he didn't have to tell us about it. He just did it. He carried around this little notebook in his pocket. It was called a Jada Week, I think. And little, it's like this, but it was just a notepad. And every time he asked him something, <laughs> write it down. If we never forgot anything, yeah, you know. And we all yeah. kind of learned from that because it was like. How many people would come up to Brad during the course of a day with things yeah. to do? Oh, no. And somehow he, he managed it all. So. Oh, yeah, no, he's a big, big champion of taking notes. <laughs> but then one other comment. Um, and you talk about Brad being behind the scenes. So you picture a Robert Mondavi winery in the mid-'70s. And I started. Brad had been there for a few years. We had no human resources. We had no purchasing department. Mm. We had no safety team. It was all you know, Brad and the people around us. And it was pretty phenomenal when I think back now and think about how we're structured now with a lot of different departments and it's important that we have those. But somehow you survive 
you know, because you do the right things, you make the right decisions, and, you know, following Mr. Mandavi's lead, which Brad did, anything we bought and put into place was the best quality, and I'm sure, and I'm picturing what you're talking about, your equipment that you have, it's not the cheapest stuff out there, it's going to be really good stuff, and I look up at your fan here, and I think that is a great installation, and it's like, that was one thing, again, that Brad taught us, you don't cut corners on that kind of stuff. You want to make good long-term. Yeah, it's because you'd do it. You'd use it. It's like loaning your own equipment. It's the best way you can. Isn't that funny? I find that the older I get, the more I realize how much money I wasted on cheap crap over the last <laughs> 50 years. That, And then I go to people's houses where I see really nice furniture and rugs, and, they're, and I think... If I, if I had to do it all over again, I would have done it so much differently. <laughs> and by the way, I think women who wear boots and drive a forklift are much sexier <laughs> than women wearing the high heels. And <laughs> just FYI. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And, I, and I really love this style of tasting. I remember um, doing a tasting at Robert Craig. Uh, I don't know, 20 years ago, it must have been something like that. And it was a similar setting. It was sort of in an office type setting. And it still sticks with me to this day because the focus was all about the wine. It wasn't about all of the peripheral stuff, driving in and seeing the olive trees and and the beautiful sculptures and yeah. fountains and all that Although stuff. Although that's just, nice when you can get it. You know it's what? all okay, it's, but it's, it's not necessary it's, anymore. But but if you're really focusing in on the wine, yeah, I, right. I, just, I really right. remember that experience. It was the first time that I had done a tasting like that, and it still sticks in my head. And, and I see reviews of your guys' um, tastings. Um, you get really good reviews because people really appreciate the one-on-one oh, experience that they get here. Thank you um, for that. And, and why don't we tell people how they can get here um, and make an actual appointment, not just knocking on your door. <laughs> Use your GPS. So, yeah, no, you can call us. But um, like, like most modern businesses, we have a website, LidoSellers.com, L-E-T-O. And um, you can make an appointment on there. Um, you can shop for our wine there and uh, learn about us. And then we, we do okay on the social media. Um, we're on Instagram and kind of try to post um, our harvest activities and things like that so people can follow us. Um, we have a unique setup that we do not have a wine club. Um, but uh, when people uh, come to visit us um, in exchange for sharing their email with us, um, we offer um, you know the equivalent of a wine club discount. And since I'm also the marketing department, I'm not filling up anybody's email box with tons of things and we try to do a release uh, a couple times a year so that's where we're at and who does your distribution say if someone like myself wanted to purchase wine for that a would restaurant be direct or direct, so direct. or our california direct. manager brad warner <laughs> i've heard of him before <laughs> yeah we we had yeah, and Brad will deliver it. We had a great broker for a while, but, you know, in 2020 with the shutdown, it just, you know, our margins were so ridiculously slim or non-existent, um, mostly non-existent. Um, it just, it made sense for Brad to take it over. So we still have a couple of very solid um, partners um, that that they send out our wine to their mailing list, but it's it's really Brad and myself. And then just direct to consumer 
I use Vino Shipper as my shipping platform. Um, so that helps us as a small business quite a bit. I don't have to worry about all the licenses and stuff. It's all on them. Yeah, works out well. Big plug for them. You know, when we were tourists, we'd always take our wine over to the UPS store on, on Highway 12 in Sonoma and send it. They don't ship anymore at all. So I'm wondering what people do. Is it all just sent from the Well, John, winery? I think, is there a workaround for that if you tell them you're sending olive oil? Uh, maybe. I think I think I might have done that. Oh, once or twice? Okay. Before. <laughs> it's just olive oil. They, they rarely open it up to take a look. I'll try that. Yeah. Although I'm not sending it back to Chicago anymore. You know, we'd get it shipped. We'd get cases after cases. You know, you're out here for a couple of weeks and yeah. you just buy and then you don't have things shipped. You put them in the car and back to the hotel and all that. Yeah. You really, it's much better if you have people mm-hmm. ship it to your home. Very yeah. easy. Um, and I just want to say something. One thing that I've noticed, you know, I used to do catering events at, at Robert Mondavi at the winery. And just something that I've noticed about... Um, former or current Robert Mondavi employees is that they've always been extremely gracious and um, don't have uh, a big ego, seem to be very um, um, people, uh, friendly people. And um, I think that had something to do with the success um, over the years of, of that winery. And, and, and it's much appreciated um, by someone who's in the service industry as well. Right. Yeah. I don't know if that was something that that came down from from Mr. Mandavi, or um, but it just seems to have been the case. Or uh, the, the amount of people that I've met working at the at the winery. Uh, there is no question that came from Robert. Um, you know, he would sit down with folks, and I never saw him let anybody go in a uh, non-professional manner. Yeah. He would say, you know. This is what we need here at Rarmandavi, and it seems like you need something different. So is there anything I can do to help you get on with your path? Yeah. Um, it was never, there was never, I never saw anything that was uh, done differently than that. Yeah. But what about, like if you and Glenn could just talk for a moment about the philosophy? Because I remember when I went, when I started work at Mandavi, I mean, I had zero experience with wine. I didn't grow up with wine at the table. It was something that, you know, other people did. It was never presented as a beverage that was snobby or elitist or anything like that. And I think that, like, I think about the new generation of winemakers and some of that, uh, not winemakers, wine drinkers, excuse me, and the baggage that comes with wine, that it's this kind of elitist thing. But Mandavi... Like, that just was not part of the core philosophy. It was an everyday beverage to have at the table, to share with friends, and have a meal. And, and I think that just permeated everything in the culture that was... I mean, people used to say, you know, what school did you go to? I went to the University of Robert Mondavi yeah, Winery. Well, I mean, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think... The biggest thing is uh, leading by example, and Robert did that, you know, time and time again. Uh, we had a uh, full-time uh, janitor at Mandavi, and again, you know, I'm kind of partial to janitors because I was a janitor cleaning tops of tanks. But uh, uh, Robert would stop and stop the janitor and shake his hand and thank him for doing a great job, 
and now he wouldn't do this in front of a crowd of people at all. He would do it very subtly, but you would see that happen. And it just kind of, you know, permeated everybody that worked there. It was, it was a true team uh, before the, <laughs> before the team training or anything like that, that you know, people cared about their fellow uh, uh, employee or worker, you know, and, and helped each other. But that definitely came from Robert. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, and he sent along, you know, information to us occasionally about leadership and management, and it was always about how important people are and were. And, you know, one thing this, I don't know if you remember the Fred Crawford interview oh, that yeah. he sent to us in the early 90s, and I still send this out to managers around the company, around the winery, and Fred Crawford, his, an interview with him was in the Harvard Business Review, so Mr. Madavi loved the story, underlined the important parts that he liked, again, it was all about management and caring for people and so forth, and he sent it to all of us, and I still have it in my desk. And, but one of the key lines there, the underline was that management is a common sense affair. <laughs> Don't, you know, overcomplicate it. You know, and it's stopping to talk to the janitor. It's knowing people's names. It's not coming out of the book that, you know, you read a philosophy and this is how you do it. So that was, again, you led by example for sure. And it was a great place to work, you yeah, know, for, for that awesome. reason. Well, well, any shout-outs this week, guys? I, you know, by the time this show airs, I'm I'm looking forward to um, um, MJ Towler's uh, top wines that he's been uh, doing. I think he went on to number two, and then tonight he's got Sarah, the winemaker at Maggie Hawk, um, um, making Pinot in the deep end of Anderson Valley. So I'm going to listen to that, but that'll be gone by the time this uh, this releases. But other than that, I'm just enjoying getting getting this year over with at the um at the hotel and getting through thanksgiving and christmas and looking forward to a little slowdown um in january and february and and um catching our breaths it's been it's been a wild uh year and a half uh almost going on two years now um of some some craziness and so. it's nice getting back on the road with the podcast it you're really right is. you're right john it has been a while yeah, hasn't yeah. it we did a lot of zoom in the yeah. in my backyard. And tough and to listen yeah, to some yeah. of those shows. Well, <laughs> what can you say? Yeah, I you know, um, just shout out to all of our customers and all of our listeners. We really appreciate it. Thank you to you guys for taking the time and doing this. This is really fun. Um, you know, part of what we're trying to do here is obviously always tell people about new wineries and um, you know sharing stories of that. But I also love um, grabbing the history and. Uh, since we obviously can't have Robert Mondavi, which that would have been a really fun podcast, um, having you guys just sharing some stories is, is really special because it is one of the icons of the industry. And um, uh, and you guys have spent a lot of time there, and, and that's awesome. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, so, um, yeah. All right, man. Well, I guess that's it. We'll see you guys all next week. Yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next week.